the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science Inside. My name is Elna Schertz. And I'm Lebo Madisha. Lebo, I know we don't want to think about hospitals. We don't like going there. Nobody has ever said, let's go to hospital for fun. <laughs> That's weird. Especially <laughs> not uh, public hospitals. They don't have the best reputation in this country. Yeah. It's tense. Yeah. <laughs> well, what has your experience been with them? I mean, public hospital-wise, I don't have much of an experience, but... Every time I go to a public hospital, it's to visit someone. So I just see the conditions and I'm just like, is this really where people come to get healthy again? <laughs> like, yo, you're going to come out alive. Sometimes it's a bit sketchy, like the situations that people are put in in our public hospitals. Mm, I've heard horror story upon horror story and personally experienced really hard working amazing doctors and nurses who try very hard small scale programs but against the backdrop of so many personal stories of people who've had really difficult experiences and you know what recently there's this reported statistic which we will be talking about quite a bit on the show today which scares me Recently, it's been reported that negligence at Gauteng State Hospitals has caused um, problems or unnecessary damage in the cases of over 20,000 patients in the last two and a half years. This came from Gauteng Health MEC, Gwen Hamokopa, at the Gauteng Legislature on serious adverse events. So those are any kind of unexpected medical events um, that happen to a patient which might be in response to wrong treatment or a diagnosis. So anything that happens in the health journey, whether that is somebody diagnosing you incorrectly or giving you the wrong medicine or treating you incorrectly in some way, anything that goes wrong that then means your condition is worse than it should have been in the ideal or normal case, that counts under this. And that number is pretty high. It is quite high. And like it's 20,000. That could have easily been any one of us sitting in here. Like that's such a scary thought for me. Like that could have been you, me, anyone. And I get it. I get it that, you know, doctors are, are human too. We aren't trying to keep uh, hold them to supernatural standards. Mm. But surely it should not be that high. And it should also not be increasing yearly as much as it is. According to the, the report, um, there are certain hospitals that are apparently especially high when it, um, high in occurrence with these events. Chris Hani, Bergwanath, which I know many people listening to the show maybe have had experience with, um, uh, as well as Steve Biko Academic Hospital and then George Mukari Academic Hospital. Those are some of the ones that are up high on the list. I mean, looking at what we said in the beginning, the odds are against everyone, patients and healthcare workers. So like these numbers, you don't even know who to really pinpoint it or what to really pinpoint them at. Like this is scary. And it's hard to know what the cause is. Like you're saying, you can't really just see this as a simple thing and say oh it's this or that it's uh, you know oh it's always the doctors or Mm. it's always the system always a lack of resources or always patients who aren't reacting well there are so many factors that are part of this and we've heard over the years so much about um, 
the health system at large in South Africa that isn't working the way it should. Doctors, um, you know, doing long hours, handling traumatic cases, maybe not having the personal support they should or the resources that they should. So today on the show, in our main story, we're going to be looking at this um, a little bit more holistically, specifically with Dr. Elise Archer, uh, who is a critical nurse by training, and she's worked at public health care institutions and now trains quite quite a lot of nurses in the field. And we'll be speaking to her specifically about this communication between patients um, patients and healthcare workers and just trying to get a bigger picture of this. Yeah, no, we really do need to get a greater understanding around this idea. Mm. But before that, we're going to kick it in our unscience. And we're going to talk about a worm that uses the equivalent of algebra to find its food. Listen, most people immediately <laughs> forgot algebra after they left high school. Yeah. So I'm not convinced by this yet. You'll have to tell me about this worm that apparently knows more than 16-year-old me. And I will. <laughs> <laughs> then later in the show, we get back to our main topic as we speak to, to Victoria Hume about medical humanities. Could music and the arts really have a significant impact on your health and your stay in hospital? That is pretty, pretty cool. Like, that is an exciting idea because it's such an enjoyable aspect put into this space where people are not as great and it's helping them heal. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Especially music. I mean, who doesn't like music on a good day? Exactly. Who hasn't wanted to listen to a fun song on a bad day? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or listen thing. to sad songs on bad days just to make <laughs> yourself feel worse. <laughs> Maybe. Um, all of this is coming up in our show. Stay with us. But as always, we kick it off with some science news and you can catch us on our social media on Facebook at VowFM or you can tweet us at VowFM on face on Twitter at hashtag science inside. So the entire show is up on iTunes and our website as a podcast. It's vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. If you want to chat to us, you can also find us on the WhatsApp line 0840784912 with your voice notes. But first let's get into the news. This week's science headline. So, Lebo, what do you have for us in the news today? Okay, today's news, I think, is pretty interesting, actually. It's about how algae can be responsible to um, seeding our skies with clouds. Okay, lots lots of (laughs) ideas there. It's a pretty cool idea. Algae and our clouds are in sync with one another. Mother Nature just working together to keep us alive out here. Uh, My news story is from sciencemag.org. Now, atmospheric scientists of National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, in Colorado, Christopher Ferriol, has found a phytoplankton killing virus called Emiliana Huxley, which might be lending a helping hand in seeding clouds. Now, this is a cool idea. Like, it's blowing my mind already. Okay. (laughs) It already sounds a little bit creepy, but tell me more. And it has a a young pun in it, seeding clouds. You'll catch it later. (laughs) (laughs) The study implies that after it dies, one of the ocean's most abundant microorganisms provides the seed on which water vapor can condense to form droplets, which in turn become clouds. According to Fariel, this discovery is something that he hadn't seen before, adding that this study suggests that 
processes going on in the atmosphere above the ocean may be a little bit more complex than what we had previously believed. Okay, so up till now, what exactly did we know about these atmospheric conditions over the ocean? Well, not much, guys. We didn't know much at all. <laughs> but, well, um, the ocean has a, signif- a significant influence on the Earth's weather and its climate. Now, we all know that the ocean covers majority of the Earth's surface, uh, an, about, uh, an average of about 70% right. of the global Earth's surface. It continuously exchanges heat, moisture, and carbon with the atmosphere. The ocean drives our weather patterns and influences the rates at which subtle changes occur. So that little breeze, that little bit of heat, you know, slight temperature change, it's all because the ocean is influencing the temperature. Right. The oceans absorb solar radiation and then release the heat needed to drive the atmospheric circulation by releasing aerosols that influence cloud cover and also emitting most of the water that falls on the land as rain. It absorbs carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which it can store for years on end. Okay, I guess I've never really looked at the ocean from that perspective before. So I have a little bit more newfound respect there. But tell me about how the algae comes into this whole thing. All right, so algae. A a single-celled algae can cover thousands of square kilometers of ocean. That is wild. (laughs) Single-celled algae covering thousands of square kilometers that is a vast distance to cover right this little algae man is doing a lot now the organism along with other um photosynthetic microbes occupies the base of the food web in most of the world's seas many such organisms are characterized by shells that are made up of calcium carbonate plates called Coccoliths. These are tiny microorganism fossils. When infected by a viral infection, they die, causing their shells to fall apart. Now, the majority of these coccoliths fall into the ocean floor to accumulate with cells and other materials which ultimately become grainy rocks. But some are deposited into the air by breaking waves or popping bubbles. So every time you're jumping on waves there in Durban or Cape Town, these little coccoliths are just going up. Yeah. Okay. So I can kind of see where you're going with this. (laughs) That these small particles are are then somehow feeding into our atmospheric conditions? Exactly. Now, an atmospheric chemist in the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel, Mary Trenick, says they have found that these algae are among particles in sea spray. When and when these particles scatter light, they produce a fog, right? It makes sense. Light produces heat, fog comes out of it, so it makes sense. Okay. And that they also provide a surface where water vapor can condense. Researchers have not discovered what the exact role of coccolis is and other biological parts of the ocean in this cloud formation, but... They're working on it. Okay. Now, another atmospheric chemist at NOAA in Washington states that because the particles provide a large surface area for condensation of water vapor, the coccoliths may also influence atmospheric chemistry altogether. So not just clouds, the whole atmospheric chemistry and how the atmosphere is working out there. Now, she adds that calcium carbonate also in, um, sorry, calcium carbonate in these coccoliths 
also would likely react with dimethyl sulfide, an abundant volatile sulfur compound in seawater, which is produced by the algae and other marine microorganisms. Now, in turn, this process might actually reduce the total number of cloud-forming aerosols over the ocean. Okay, so you're saying that the number of cartholus in sea air, which are the result of viral infections of marine microorganisms, you're telling us about that earlier, they're actually possibly reducing cloud formation. This is not a good thing. Yes, it's actually not. And Quinn says that this is a first good step forward in this whole research and now what researchers need to do is actually get out into the field and see what really happens out there that is influencing cloud formation and our whole atmospheric chemistry Hmm, because so often i don't know if you remember those pictures in primary school with with the air from the sea going up into the clouds yeah those little water cycles yes yeah water cycles were always just about water never did i think about algae so how exactly did they conduct the study to look at this in the first place now they wanted to better understand how the numbers of airborne coccoliths might just influence i mean fluctuate rather over time so the team of researchers working on this study went to a lab to investigate how infecting emilinia huxley with a virus called the EHV, which commonly infects these microorganisms, might change the number of free-floating coccoliths in the seawater tanks that they had and in the air above these seawater tanks. Mm -hmm. So initially, each millimeter of water held about 20 million free-floating coccoliths. These numbers are just so radical. It's like, Mother Nature, what are you truly capable of doing? But after they had um, put this thing to the test for five days the team infected the algae with this virus and five days later they discovered that the number of tiny plates in the water more than tripled tripled so we went from 20 now it's going triple 60 million okay per millimeter I feel like you have to bring this you have to bring this down to practicality for us I'm trying my best like I'm just saying Imagine a millimeter. Take your ruler and look at a millimeter. And now triple this amount that I've, I mentioned in the beginning. 20 million free-floating coccoliths. Little tiny particles of calcium carbonate. 60 million in that millimeter now. Okay. That is insane. So what does this all mean though? Okay. So what this meant is that airborne coccolis might just play an important role in cloud formation. Quite a simple explanation to this right. radical statistic that we're just running across right now. So yeah, that's all it really meant. So in short, the the researchers' experiments suggest that once coccolis begin to make their way into the atmosphere, their numbers readily grow see now they Mm -hmm. increase because they're kind of heavy so they fall slowly Ah. a coccolith size particle of salt spray which forms when the water is is in a salty droplet evaporates in which it is much denser and thus falls about 25 times faster i mean Mm -hmm. sorry yeah 25 times faster so it's quite a fast rate that it falls at so over time bits of salt of, uh, sorry, bits of 
salt drop out of the air, which is a crazy idea as well, leaving the proportions of coccolis in cloud sea spray aerosol gradually increasing and thus gain an increasing influence on cloud formation. So next, this team stop is Norway, where blooms of Aluminia huxley are quite common. So they're just going to keep on researching on this particular topic, this oh. new discovery. I would hope that there are positive, positive applications of this and and can can be used in some way perhaps for us to understand either atmospheric conditions better or um or just the algae and and the way our oceans move and everything I mean, in them the, functions the part where it influences atmospheric chemistry was actually just a little spark in my head because we could somehow since we like altering things as human beings we could alter this chemistry hopefully not damaging our future to somehow work with our carbon emission rate you know so we could use mother nature to our benefit yeah that's always where the thoughts go right as soon as you say atmosphere people are like what does this mean for climate change yes so in my news story today Lebo um, it's been reported on various platforms but it comes from a company called Volabuck it's a new jacket okay I'll know a jacket huh I mean, mm-hmm. we can go to the shops and buy a jacket. <laughs> <laughs> so, is this a fashionable thing or is it really science? What's going on here? I am very excited about this jacket. Do not burst my bubble. It is science. <laughs> I'm very excited. <laughs> so, I promise you this is not only like a show about fashion. The jacket, it's not that bad looking it's kind of stylish okay i mean you're not gonna wear it on the first date but it's it's okay (laughs) it's sort of a slim fit dark gray hoodie but that is the least interesting thing about this okay and definitely not the reason why anybody is buying it one side of this jacket is coated with graphene okay Have have you heard of it Explain. So when you take graphite, like the stuff in pencils, a form of carbon, Mm -hmm. and make a tiny, tiny, very thin layer of it, of just a single atom, it starts forming these hexagon shapes of atoms, right? Okay. And that is graphene. Graphene is a total super material. Like if materials were people, it would be like it would be that the coolest. It would be what the Fantastic Four team is using in their yes. everyday suits. Absolutely, <laughs> it is the strongest, lightest, and most conductive material that we know of. Excuse me, conductive. Yes. <laughs> so it's difficult to work with, unfortunately, and very expensive to produce at the moment. But once scientists really figure out how to use it, it could revolutionize. So many things. I mean, the lightest and the strongest material, Lebo. Space travel, electronics. Exactly. I'm just thinking like Mars mission. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) So it is kind of the darling of materials um, at the moment for the last few years. It was thought to exist for quite a while, but graphene was officially isolated and understood in 2004 and then won two Nobel Prizes in 2010. So you're trying to tell me that graphene won... A Nobel Peace Prize, a Nobel Prize rather. Yes, in physics. And, and could change things for a lot of in- industries that, as we know it. Yes. 
So now, why are they making jackets out of it again? <laughs> <laughs> How do you get from another piece spies to yeah, jackets? Like, okay. <laughs> so, because it hasn't really been taken out of specialized research labs, remember I said it's expensive, it's difficult to work with. So, even though we know it has incredible potential, we don't really know what that potential is is we don't entirely know what this is going to look like what it is able to do and what it isn't able to do okay so there's so much we just don't quite know so this particular company said hey let's throw it out there into the world see what happens see what happens happy go lucky i like them (laughs) just like create a big experiment of it so if you buy this graphene jacket you can do with it what you want, obviously, at your own risk. Play with it, <laughs> go into extreme environments, uh, try it out, do what you want to, and then you go back and tell them what happened and what you thought of it. And that may just add to the future um, like research and possibilities of using graphene. Okay, that is a practical implementation of it, actually. Even though it's like the super, super cool thing, you don't want to go big before you, like, you don't want to go big and then find out that it's actually a bust and then everything goes absolutely wrong when you're in space. And, yeah. <laughs> so it might, you might as well just try it on people. Like, okay, guys, is it nice in winter? In summer, how is it? Okay, yeah. sharp. <laughs> <laughs> so now, tell us more about this jacket and how it actually works. What is it? Sure. So first of all, it's reversible, the one they've designed. So one side is fully coated in graphene while the other is good old nylon. And this isn't just because graphene is so expensive and you don't want it on the inside and the outside it's actually to give you a chance to either let the material be on your body interacting with your skin or with the world outside so you have two very different things that might happen there uh, because this graphene layer is so thin and invisible to the eye the jacket thankfully isn't clunky it's not heavy so i can imagine people are going to get out into all kinds of environments with them yeah i've got plans for this (laughs) thing like okay when i go on a camping trip like i'm gonna take that jacket when I do somehow like run into snow, I'm going to have that jacket yeah. because it's convenient. It's not heavy, but it will probably keep me warm, I'm guessing, because mm-hmm. it's a good conductor. Yes. And so now this sounds really cool, right? But now I have one concern. You said graphene is the world's strongest, lightest and most conductive material. The first two are great, but conductivity, now I'm not too sure how I'm going to wear something that's going to conduct. I'm already, a con- like I can conduct electricity as a human <laughs> being, so I don't need any more <laughs> conduction going on in my body. I might just die from it. <laughs> yeah, it does sound a little bit worrisome, doesn't it? Yeah. So actually, one of the first jacket prototypes they created conducted electricity a little bit too well (laughs) if you put a power source on one side of it and a light bulb on the other it would it would turn on excuse me statics in winter are real (laughs) so so they they downgraded it just a little bit made it a little bit more safe but the conductivity does mean that your body heat gets conducted really well across the graphene right so say one part of your body is really cold and the other is really hot that heat can be um conducted across the graphene and and um, even itself out so for, for those people who have like really cold fingers but then but then obviously your heart might be or like your chest area is warmer then you can you can deal with that that can really help um, so 
so that's really good but also it can retain heat so say you leave it out in the sun for a little but it actually keeps that heat inside and then transfers it to you far longer than any kind of other material but it's also better than other materials that keep paying down humidity so it's warm but not stuffy so you don't get all sweaty if you want to go like train or run in it or whatever in fact if you exercise in this you won't get smelly either because bacteria can't grow on graphene um, my birthday is on the 11th of January. I sweat a lot when I go to basketball practice. So <laughs> people <laughs> One, who please. love me, please um, send me this. <laughs> but it's also waterproof. So that's good. And remember, I was talking about how strong graphene is. This jacket is not bulletproof. Okay. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> that, would, that would take just 10 layers of graphene. So this is one layer. If you had 10. It would be bulletproof. It would be bulletproof. I'm, I'm wondering how heavy it would be. Yeah, I don't think that bad, thankfully. But they are hoping to get there. So they're already boasting about how they want to be the people who make... Um, obviously, you can get bulletproof jackets, but but not this kind of yeah. bulletproof jacket. I mean, this is sounding so cool. The whole idea just sounds like it should be made into a bodysuit. Because yes. I can swim in it. I can run in it. I can do whatever I want in it. I, I have you on board now. <laughs> but unfortunately, even though technically you could buy one, you can't. Because you and I are not the only people who love this. So their <laughs> stock immediately sold out on the oh, first edition. Wow. Um, but they are planning to release a new batch soon. Um, and here's the other thing. One jacket is about 10 grand in rands, which is a lot. <laughs> I'm not getting one of those jackets. <laughs> no. So there aren't many reviews about this out yet. But if even half of what the company is saying is true, this is a very neat piece of clothing and of science. Yes, indeed. That, that wraps up our science news. Uh, next up, we are talking about what leads to negligence in the medical healthcare sector and how the causes can be counteracted through various means. Stay with us. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. Today we are discussing a recent report around negligence in Hateng State Hospitals, which is pretty shocking, Lebo. But this isn't just a simple, straightforward problem, and I want to make sure that we don't talk about it as such, because so often people easily say there's a villain and there's you know there's a victim and it's it's simple it's this guy's fault or this institution or this system exactly that's not the case there's doctors nurses and patients as well as a lot of systems in place now to understand a little bit more of how this kind of negligence may come about we spoke to dr elise archer now she is a critical nurse by training and has previously worked at government and public hospitals she is the head of the Clinical Skills Center at the University of Stellenbosch, and she also works on the design and implementation of initiatives focused on development of patient-centered communication skills. Elise says that we need to understand that there are many moving parts that add to the situation that we're seeing right now. Patients don't get the service they require necessarily. The reality of the healthcare service. It's a huge ship, I can almost say. There's structural things in place, there's equipment, and then there's people. And the people are nurses and admin people and doctors. So, and for all of those, there'd be a different answer. I personally believe it's very much about relationship and communication. 
because I think often that its patients are not really clear of what's going to happen to them or why something has happened to them and that is potentially something we can improve on. Now, the patients are, of course, a critical part. And Elise says that the expectations that they have coming into the system as well as how they are dealt with are very important. I think sometimes it might be the case that patients expect something from um, they go to the hospital and they think something that's wrong with them can be cured. And the reality is many of the diseases we see nowadays, like chronic diseases, like hypertension and obesity and diabetes, those things cannot be fixed by a sister or a doctor. It is actually the patient that must change their lifestyle. And I think it's hard sometimes for patients to realize that it's going to be a combined effort. The doctor can't just give them a pill and it will be be right. So that's, I think it's about educating the patients what type of sickness they have and whether it can really be cured with a a drug or whether it's just lifestyle changes. And in fact, there's quite um, literature on that as well, that the staff in, in the South African context, they work very hard. There's a lot of patients and they see some bad cases, if I can put it that way, the traumatic ones. So some of them tend to become very cynical and I think sometimes it's a protection, it's a way to protect themselves because they realize they cannot get involved in everything. And that is why we also, as part of our training nowadays, put a lot of emphasis on self-care and on things like mindfulness. And it's important for the healthcare provider, the nurse or the doctor, to look after themselves as well because if they burn out they are not going to be able to care for other people because it's not easy to 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 work in some of the conditions some of these people work in so Lebo, what i'm hearing here is that it's not just um, about the patients even though they're central but very much around how healthcare workers are treated and are treating themselves Exactly. That is a big focus of this. And often the healthcare system doesn't leave much room for treating doctors like human beings. And then things like compassion fatigue kick in where they aren't able to empathize as they need to. But it's not just on them, but the institutions they work for. Now, here's Elise again. I think institutions have a responsibility. And I mean, I can give you a, a small example where often in, in a hospital when patients die and in a trauma case or so, we have something that we call a debrief. And it's basically that team that worked with the patient who sit together and talk about the whole thing, what happened, so that they can be sure what what happened was the right thing that happened. But often because people are busy, those conversations doesn't happen. And then it might be a new young doctor or new young sister, part of that, who goes home and they have unclear and almost like unfinished business because they think back about that and they wonder shouldn't they have done this and shouldn't they have done that yet if you think of what the whole picture was it wasn't at all that person's responsibility or their fault so something that hospitals are quite good at nowadays is they are forcing that as part of their quality control that after traumatic incidents there should be a debrief for the staff involved. And I think on paper it is implemented, 
the reality is people are busy and they often don't get to it. But, I mean, many things, like you will know, is, is, on, is one thing on paper and one thing is what happens. So now when we discuss the strain on doctors, it's also about the emotional and psychological pressure, not just the resources available and the hours they need to work. Mm. So now even though this is often not working the way it should, there are people who are trying to implement this shift. People like Elise, who are trying to implement a shift that will influence the newer healthcare providers that are getting into the system. The other thing that I think are more um, pronounced at the moment is that we are, especially with a new generation of, of students coming through, and we are reminding them to look after themselves. It's not your destiny if you come into a health professions profession that you just have to become cynical. You can be the next generation that that have a, a, a positive attitude. and But in order to have a positive attitude, you have to look after yourself. It goes back to that. We have to remind them, do exercise, eat well, sleep well. Those basic things, it might sound like silly things, but in the end, if you're tired, you haven't eaten well, you cannot care for a patient. I mean, the, the, the Department of Health and with all their facilities, I think it's, it's such a huge um, thing if you talk about them. It is, of course, there are some places that do better than others. I mean, I can just look around in our area and I know there's places where there's wonderful been happening, but it's often been driven by an individual. And other places where maybe there's not somebody so passionate about these things, then they, they really couldn't care. And ideally, we would want every place to have a system in place where they care for their, their people, for their staff members. But I mean, just from, from my perspective, where we work with the students that's in training, we just try and urge them and say, you are the new generation who's going to be working in the hospitals. If you become the new manager there or the new um, deputy of the hospital, remember these things. So we hope with the newer generation and that there's more talk about these things than years ago. People would just say, no, you have to go on. You're a sissy if you can't cope. I think we're beyond that. We realize people need to have time to reflect, have time to, to think about themselves. Now, central to this, Elise says, is that while the doctors may have all the medical knowledge, their emotions are still very important. As we mentioned earlier, empathy is at the center of this. To me, the, the best, best thing is what we call empathy. And empathy then needs to be just redefined as the way we see it is as something that's got both an affective and a cognitive component to it. But with the affective component being that you, you kind of feel what the patient feels and the cognitive is that you verbalize that in words that make the patient feel better. We, we teach our students in our program now that the first thing is you have to acknowledge patients' emotions and you have to be non-judgmental in the sense that if somebody, for example, is angry, then it's their right to be angry. And you as a doctor or a nurse, it's not for you to say whether it's correct for them to be angry. 
the bottom line is they, they are angry. It's for you to recognize that emotion. Maybe they've got cancer and they are very angry that they have this disease. And we want them to listen to the patient, listen them out, find out why are they feeling like they're feeling. And it's not to say that you're going to make a verdict to say it's either right or it's wrong. It's not about that. It's about allowing the patient to speak about that. And according to literature, just merely a patient being allowed to speak about what they feel and being listened to, that already makes you feel, I feel much better. I feel this one at least listens to me. Where if the contrary would be somebody just judging them and saying, no man, it's, it's not that bad, don't worry. That's not what the patients want to hear. So I would say caring is really to listen to somebody where after you've listened to them, to actually just make them feel that they are okay. It's okay. They, they have the right to feel what they feel. This topic of good communication skills is at many conferences. Lebo, all of this sounds so good, and I'm glad that there's more focus on doctor-patient communication. But still, I see these statistics, like of the, the recent ones that came out in Gauteng, and it does it does make me feel quite disheartened. It does, honestly, because these stats are a reflection of what's happening in people's lives, how people's lives are affected by our healthcare system. But Elise does say it is improving. But there is also a lot to consider in all of this. Mm, and I guess each of us can play some tiny role in that, whether we are patients, um, whether we are a loved one of a patient, or even just think of the doctors in your lives. Honestly, like you the have doctors friends. do have a lot of pressure on them. Mm, yeah, so even that is a is a good starting point or, or I guess thing to end it on um, to make it a little bit more practical. We are going to take just a little bit of a break Break from this topic next up with our end science. You're listening to the Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. If you're a regular on the show, you know that we like to take a little bit of a break from the serious stuff in the middle of the show. It's unscience time where it gets weird and wonderful. <laughs> yes, and I like this one. <laughs> <laughs> we look at some research that's going to make you think, really, really, guys? That's what scientists are focusing on. Like that's that's the best part. Like scientists still have time to have fun. Yeah. They still do ridiculous things like discover worms that use mats to find their food. <laughs> now it's really amusing this stuff. Today's Unscience was produced by Gloria Mabuza with music from YouTube and the article comes from Science Daily via the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Let's get into it. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. Alna, do you remember algebra from school? Yes, I was a total math nerd. <laughs> now, it was like, what, two plus two is four, and then all of a sudden they just added alphabets and was like, oh, wait a minute, what is this? <laughs> yeah, I, I remember um, being in those initial algebra classes and being like, guys, there's no letters in mathematics. Exactly. <laughs> why are we trying to, you know, solve for X? It makes me wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> yep, and that's kind of punny. I like that. Well, complex mathematical calculations are an everyday thing for some animals in the animal kingdom. Wild. A new research study 
published by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem by Dr. Alan Zalslaver and his team revealed that some animals perform mathematical calculations to find their next meal. <laughs> Imagine if this, if this is what humans had to do. You had to solve math equations to get to, you, to, to get to McDonald's burger. We would all be starving, a lot of us. For sure, we and, would be. <laughs> and a lot of us would be like making friends with, with the... the smart kids. With the smart kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So imagine, imagine having to go to bed hungry just because you failed to solve for X. <laughs> that would be crazy though. Like... That would be really something else out of this world, really. Maybe maths could actually force us like to improve our mental capacity, you know, thinking about food and mathematics at the same time. We wouldn't be lazy couch potatoes. We would be intelligent I don't couch think, potatoes. I don't think you're going to convince anybody. I'm just <laughs> But especially if you look at our education system i i don't know it would take a lot of work but tell me more about this research let's get to this worm okay so this study was performed on c elegans worms and it was discovered that these worms employ a sniffing method to locate their food okay they're sniffing for their food that makes sense sounds like something an animal would do where does mathematics come into this okay so apparently it's like the hot or cold game you're in a dark house and a chocolate cake has been taken out of the oven so obviously to find the cake you would probably sniff your way around and walk in the direction of that scent i most definitely would because i love cake <laughs> yeah actually <laughs> like it's a it's a real thing i don't you. know i don't know why i would be in a dark room with cake but i would still find it <laughs> sounds like a bad story <laughs> this is a terrible story like the setup is weird like i'm in a dark room with cake right now about to indulge hey sniff sniff Sniff. I'm coming for you. I'm not asking any any questions. But um, getting back to your worm, what happens then, then? Does it calculate its path to the food? Yes, it actually does. So there's a neural cell in their brains that is activated, which acts like a function called the vasus re recalculation root function. This cell then senses derivatives. A little bit of calculus there. You see that worm, it's, it's flourishing, <laughs> meaning it calculates the odor intensity using derivatives. Okay. Catch that. <laughs> it then classifies it according to positive, getting hotter, getting colder or negative. If by any chance its calculations is negative, it means that it's moving further away from the cake and would then have to recalculate its route. If its calculation is positive, then it would continue in its path. Like, I'm coming for you, cake. Ooh. I don't think this worm <laughs> eats cake. I'm just assuming it doesn't. Okay, in, in a case of a human being. Okay, but I get your point. <laughs> yeah. Sounds interesting. Yes, but that's not all, okay? Then the cell continues to calculate more data on the smell to detect whether the current odor intensity is getting stronger or weaker. Then it puts together a chart with new differential measures as a backup. This worm is so smart, it has a backup plan to find its food. Like, <laughs> Maybe it's just hungry. Maybe. It's just very hungry. But humans don't use the system as, as, it is more, as we are more complicate, complicated beings. So 
it is a simple way of finding food according to our complex ways as human beings but mathematics is a complex thing to use so it's kind of like a contradictory thing I get you but listen you haven't seen me hangry <laughs> things, things become very simple just feed me yeah no when you get hungry like I think if I were to get hungry enough I'd be willing to do a complex proof I really would yeah somebody <laughs> gave me like a sudoku and was like you have to solve this like okay cool yeah that's fine if, if you're feeding I'm me eat. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so it does sound um, yeah like one of those mathematical equations where you just have to solve for two values of x it just gets so complicated yeah like the positive and the negative yeah so uh, Dr. Zalslavis seems to think that these worms could actually teach us an important lesson. He says that when looking at solving math problems, a quick solution is very attractive, quicker and easier. However, we need a backup plan, a system to ensure that we are moving in the right direction. But I mean, if you get the right answer, who's fighting you guys? Wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. <laughs> that was unscience, unusual, unlikely, unscience um, as every week. Just breaking up the show a little bit with something something that always just keeps me loving science. <laughs> Definitely. I love it. <laughs> After the break, stay with us. We are looking at the question of music when you're sick and I don't just mean sort of raising raising your mood a little bit by listening to your favorite jam it goes much deeper than that stay with us unusual unlikely unscience this is the science inside with Elna you're still on the science inside Today on the show, we've been speaking about the experiences of patients in hospitals and how the care they get influences their health. Labor, till now, up till now, we've been focusing very much on the people involved, on the healthcare workers and um, you know doctors, nurses, and of course the patients. But there's so much more than just the medicine and the people working with it that can impact you. I mean, think of all of the aspects of a hospital stay it's the comfort of your bed the quality of the food how loud or quiet it is that is very true the environment that you're in influences your overall well-being even in your everyday life hmm. and there's something else that might be powerful i'm so excited to speak about this it, it isn't as obvious as you might think music so we have in studio with us victoria hume it's so nice to have you you with us victoria welcome Thanks for having me she is a composer arts manager and researcher currently working with wiser and the Witt school of arts when she's not releasing music like her most recent ep called closing she is focused on the medical humanities which basically just means how arts and medicine can interact this isn't something that i think most people have have thought of before Victoria most of us maybe enjoy music or the arts we might feel happy when we're listening to something but tell us how can it be used as a tool in improving health sure um, I mean the first thing to say perhaps is that medical humanities is bigger than just the arts it can be anthropology relating to medicine or sociology or it could be any of the humanities disciplines but my particular area of interest is is much more around the arts and health um, but music in hospitals, I guess, I mean, you were saying earlier, who doesn't love music, good days and bad days and all the rest of it. So it, it does work in the hospital in exactly the same way it would work in any other context. We respond to music in hospital for the same reasons that we do elsewhere. Um, 
but the context is obviously different and you alluded to this just now it's it's somewhere where we don't have much control over what's happening to us um we're probably in pain or feeling horrible in all sorts of different ways in this context music can do a lot of different things it can give us back a sense of control of agency um it can distract us from our pain it can lessen our anxiety um a lot of the research that's happened to date has looked particularly at pain anxiety and depression um, partly because those are slightly more measurable things, I guess. But in a less abstract way, it can also change the way re we relate to the space itself. And you were talking about the physical environment that we're in. Uh, so, for example, if I, as a patient and a nurse, are both enjoying the same piece of music, we start relating to each other in a different way. It changes our own our relationship. It shifts the power dynamic in quite a healthy way, and we start uh, dealing with each other as people rather than patient as clinician, if you see what I mean. This is a very interesting topic and I would like to know what kind of music would one play in in a hospital setting? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so there isn't really a rule, I would say. I mean, you might... It's quite easy to make the assumption that we need something uh, peaceful or, you know, harps, so the first thing that a lot of people yeah. think of. <laughs> but... Um, but I think, you know, you like the same music in hospital that you like outside hospital. So if you're not really into classical music, you're not suddenly going to be desperate to listen to classical music when you're in hospital. <laughs> That's true. So, <laughs> it's, it's much more about our own uh, preferences, I guess. But having said that, I think the, the big distinction is really between live music and recorded music rather than types of music for me. Um, quite a lot of the clinical literature looks at music they talk about something called therapeutic music which is a term that's been coined to talk about music in headphones in hospital contexts but um this is quite different from having live musicians in the space with you mm. so if it's in your headphones then i think it's much more about personal preference if it's musicians in the space then the type of music often matters much less than the fact of having people playing music for you so it's much more about the interaction between you as people it allows people to relate exactly oh, yeah. that's cool one one um, instance where it was more of a live music situation was a project that you worked on um, with the Witz Donald Gordon Medical Center and Witz School of Arts at Krasani, Bogwanath um, Academic Hospital. What were the results that you observed there? So, yeah, we've had a program going at, um, at Donald Gordon Medical Centre for about four years, and it's part of an honours-level community music course at the Witt School of Arts. Um, the, music the music students go in weekly to learn how to make music in hospitals, really, so it's quite a practical aspect of the course. Um, and one of the really good things that ca has come out of this is the students from the very first year have now gone on to form their own organisation, which is called Comcerts, the Community of Music Makers of South Africa, and they play every week in Barra. Um, and they work there in the paediatric surgical unit and in the burns unit. There's a, that's funded by an organisation called Surgeons for Little Lives. Um, but we have, alongside all of this practical work, we have a partnership with the research team at Donald Gordon, um, and together we've been giving out questionnaires to patients, to staff, to family members uh, over the last three, four years. And the findings tend to be very consistent across both spaces. And you were talking about the, diff you know, the complexities of state care. But interestingly, we're finding that both in Donald Gordon, which is essentially a private hospital, and Barra, the results from the music are very similar. So people tell us that it's enjoyable that it breaks up the day um so a patient at donald gordon recently said that the days are long it's lovely to hear music for the soul at barra we had a staff member saying that it was wonderful to hear to see the kids singing along um the 
the mood changed and they forgot about their pain. Uh, we have relatives saying things like, um, it's good to hear the music because it, your worries go away while you're listening to it. So, it, yeah, it's a very similar story fairly consistently across the three years. Uh, yeah, we had a paper that came out earlier this year and 80% of the people that were that heard the music no I beg your pardon 95% of them said it was enjoyable 96 of percent of the carers said they found it enjoyable so it's yeah it tends to you tend to get very positive results mm, I absolutely understand what you're saying about music um, lifting spirits and how important that is but I was very um, very pleasantly to, uh, surprised to see that some of the projects you've worked on were used music in a very practical sense um, a practical medical sense I'm speaking in particular about a project called Singing for Breathing mm -hmm. in the UK where patients with lung problems use singing to very directly improve their health how does that work? Um, right so that's been going for about 10 years and it's uh, this particular project is based at a cardiothoracic trust in the UK so it's a, a specialist hospital that treats people with lung and heart problems um, and actually the project was thought of by a colleague of mine who's a singer-songwriter as I am, her name's Lucy Underhill, um, and we realised that the exercises people were being taught to improve their breathing, people with chronic lung disease, were very similar to the exercises that we were learning as singers. So it seemed like an obvious uh, move in some ways. We were running an arts programme at the time anyway. Um, so we set up a choir. It's been a big success. Hundreds of people have passed through it over the years. There's now lots of other choirs in the UK that are looking at, uh, that are trying to achieve similar things. Um, but to answer your question about what's going on there, it, th there's two sides to it really. One is that singing is a social activity, as anybody who's part of a choir knows. So if you have a long term condition, it can uh, impact on your social life enormously you start to worry about how other people are going to um, cope with your condition if you can't finish a sentence without coughing how do you sustain a conversation if you can't walk up three steps without running out of breath how do you how do you function socially as you used to before and it, so it can be very isolating that leads to depression that makes you less active if you have a chronic lung problem activity is really crucial to keeping you well so the disease tends to progress more quickly it's sort of a uh, a cycle, uh, yeah, a bad cycle that you can get into. But the choirs um, give people new skills. It's a way of being sociable with a group of people who understand your situation. So there's that peer support element of it. Um, but there is a physiological side of it. Um, and as I said, it's partly because we realised that the physiotherapist exercises were very similar to singers' exercises. And essentially what's happening is that we're using our lungs more efficiently you're learning to pace yourself and it kind of slips in under the radar so rather than thinking about your breathing you're thinking about singing you know that when you start thinking about your breathing instantly you start running out of breath <laughs> um, so so it's a way of kind of yeah introducing us to better practice around breath i guess mm -hmm. yeah and in a in a fun social yeah, way exactly. like you're saying exactly so i've got a question what if you can't sing Oh gosh, that's the first question everybody asks. <laughs> I used to go around the wards recruiting people for the choirs and literally the first thing everybody says is, my wife says I can't sing and I mustn't be in a room with other people. And um, Pretty much everybody can sing. That, the thing about tone deafness, it's extremely rare, tone deafness, because if you, if you really were tone deaf, you wouldn't be, you'd struggle to understand what people are saying because you wouldn't be able that's to true. read 
the tonal shifts in their voice, so most people can sing to one degree or another. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, Victoria, yeah. um, many of us are not currently in hospital. We uh, we may not be in hospital um, a very large amount of our lives. Is there something we can learn from the medical humanities or how art and medicine combines just for us ordinary folk out there? who are still relatively healthy. Sure. Um, I mean, I'll, t I'll just mention briefly that I just started a new role as the, uh, with the Culture, Health and Wellbeing Alliance in the UK. And one of the things we're working on is this idea of arts on prescription. So um, if you get unwell, you go to your doctor and rather than prescribing a course of drugs, they prescribe you to join a choir or join a <laughs> dancing club. It's, this is something that's already happening and we're hoping it's going to roll out much more. But... Um, Another aspect of this is that we're uh, getting behind some recommendations that you spend a certain period of each day doing something creative. Um, so there's, a, there's now quite a lot of research underpinning the idea that if we indulge in some kind of creative activity every day, that keeps us healthier, keeps, our, um, keeps us cognitively healthy, keeps us engaged with each other later in our lives, prevents loneliness, all these kinds of things. So it's worth fighting to have a creative part of your day every day if you want to stay healthy. Thank you, Victoria Hume, so much for joining us on the okay, show. You're welcome. You're still on the science inside. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. It's been a great show indeed. And thank you to all our guests, including Victoria Hume. Um, and Dr. Elise Archer. Today, our team behind the scenes, as always, is production by Bridget LePere, Gloria Mabuza, and Harmony Malefe. Take back with Lana Sahame. You can get our show on our podcast at uh, vits.journalism.co.za forward slash science and on iTunes. Social media, you can get us on Facebook and on Twitter as at VowFM. My name's Alna Schutz. And I'm Lebohang Madisha. The Science Inside is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. We will be with you again next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on OFM 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.